Advent series on love. Where we've, this is our fourth week. We heard the reading there. And uh, so we've done hope, joy, peace. And uh, this week is love. And uh, so this morning I simply want to talk about the greatest act of love ever. Amen. It started with Christmas. That's what Christmas is. Before we get started, I just want to remind ourselves of, of uh, what, we're, what we're celebrating here at Christmas. You know, we've heard it before, we've celebrated it, we've heard the story, but uh, we're talking about the God, the creator of the universe, the creator of the universe, almighty God, creator of all things. There was nothing, and then he spoke it into being, and there was all matter. Everything. He created all things. Right? That God, all-powerful, designed, intricately designed down to every atom and every cell. And I mean, we're, with all the scientific advancements of the last couple hundred years, we've barely scratched the surface, you know, to the grandeur of the universe, hundreds of billions of galaxies with hundreds of millions of stars. We can't even fathom. That God humbled himself, made himself nothing, took the form of a servant. Philippians 2, 7, 8 says it, he emptied himself, Jesus Son of God, God the Son, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, a baby, a helpless baby, dependent on the very parents that he created, the the parents that he's giving breath to, sustaining every second, you know, dependent on them. A baby into this world as as the, the broken body, the failing body that we have, right? The sinful world. The God of the universe humbled himself to that level. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He lived a sinless, perfect life, and yet he still humbled himself. He came knowing that was the end. Humbled himself. Just the humility to be born as a frail human from the almighty God of the universe. I mean, that's what we're talking about at Christmas. And, and I think my worry for this morning is we look at this Christmas story again, and different people have mentioned it already, Doug and Ernest, and as we look at this again, it's a story we've heard, we're familiar with from when we're kids. And then as we look at that, that act of love, why he came for salvation, that salvation message, that we've likely heard it before probably many times. Many of you I know, so I get to know you've grown up in church, you've heard it. And that, um, yeah, that we will lose that sense of awe and wonder. This is the most understanding this. Jesus coming to save us is the most important thing we can understand in this life. It's the most important thing in this life if we believe these things to be true. If there's a God who created you. And so let's hear it this morning. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're you're not or don't know (laughs) where you're at, let's hear it this morning. Let's hear it fresh and new. As Christians, we should be preaching this to ourselves every day, this gospel message. It's the foundation for everything we do. And so before we get starting, I'd just like to pray, as Jesus would often say, you know, give them ears to hear. And let's just take a moment just to pray and ask God to let us hear this fresh and anew. Lord Jesus, we come here in in this Christmas season and we can hardly fathom that you, creator, almighty God, would humble yourself and be born as a baby in a stable to poor parents in an oppressed part of the world. You were willing to live a poor human life, to experience all the brokenness of sin that we experience, 
betrayal and, and lying and, and Lord, you, right until death in the most horrible way, you experienced every wicked thing at the hands of sinful men. And yet you still came to earth knowing. And you did that for us. And it's hard for us to even fathom. But Lord, give us, an, uh, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see this morning that would build our faith, that we can accept this by faith, believing that you did come, Jesus, and that your death paid for our sins and gave us eternal life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so turn to that passage. We read Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Before we read this, I just want to remind us that we're reading a historical document here. This Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was a real guy. He walked and he talked and he saw Jesus, right? I like to think of it this way to try and get my head into it. I go, Jesus felt the same sun on his face that I feel. I mean, he looked up at the same starry sky. He breathed the same air that we breathe. It's that real. That's who we're reading about. This Matthew, he walked and talked and knew Jesus, and he, and he wrote this down. And uh, as Christians, one of the amazing things, I mean, we believe this to be word, God's word, okay? But I just, I just like the fact on top of that that God, because he can, I think, that we have so much history to back it up, you know? It's just like it's a bonus. But I just, if I can just take a little tangent here and just give you as Christians, a lot of people don't know this, just a little bit of confidence. This, the New Testament, the New Testament is a historic, but if you just measure it by the, how they measure historical documents, um, it's more reliable than any other document of the period by many times over. And so I'll just give you that. There's three ways they measure old manuscripts, they call it. That's an old document of a something, right? How long after it was written is the, is the manuscript, the copy we have. Um, and that one, the, the next best ones, some of Aristotle's writings and stuff like that, the oldest copies we have are 500 years after he was there, okay? Homer's Iliad, if you've heard of that one, 1,400 years. That's the, the oldest copy we have. The Bible, less than 100 years. We have copies from within 100 years of when they were written, because, you know, they handwritten everything, all the copies. Okay? This one's even more. Then they measure it based on how many manuscripts you have. How many copies do you have? Because obviously the more copies you have, the better, more reliably, the more proof that is that it's true, right? Most of, the, most of the ancient documents from this time, if you've got 8, 10, 20, that's a lot. I mean, the, the papyrus just disintegrated, right? It was like <laughs> made out of reeds from the river. So, so having even that many is a lot. Okay, um, some, the next best one is Homer's Iliad. It has 643 manuscripts. The New Testament, over 24,000. 24,000, okay, manuscripts. I mean, it's not even, we're not even playing, it's not, we're in the same ballpark, we're not even playing the same sport. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, this is, that's how reliable. And then how, and then the third thing they measured on is how many, how similar are is You get all these different manuscripts written over, copied by hand over hundreds of years, you'd think there'd be changes and differences, right? The Bible is 99.5% the same. Those 24,000 manuscripts, when they compared them from across the Roman world, written in four or five different languages, 99.5% the same when they looked through those manuscripts. And the differences, one of the great things with our modern English translations, you've probably seen it in the footnotes, and actually our first verse, verse 18, does anybody have a footnote about verse 18, about a manuscript there? That's what uh, mine says, uh, now the birth of Jesus Christ, and then the little footnote says, in some manuscripts, of the Christ, so it doesn't have Jesus in there. Now, we know it's talking about Jesus, because three verses later, Mary, the angel tells Mary to call him Jesus, right? So it's just, in a copy at some point, a couple manuscripts, or some of the manuscripts had of the Christ instead of, of Jesus Christ, but it makes no difference to the meaning, because again, Jesus is three verses later, right? But that's just an example. It never, these, the 0.5% doesn't make any difference. I just want to tell you that. I just want to give you that a little quick. That's just one quick example of the kind of, of over and above proof that we have as Christians, because our faith is, is founded in a real person, Jesus, a historical person who lived 
and who died for you. And so just keep that in mind as we read this, hear this anew. This is what happened. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now that's a big deal back in that day. You get pregnant, be out of wedlock, you could be stoned for it. And so this is, Mary's a poor girl, engaged, betrothed to be married. And we know Matthew account, or Luke accounts how the angel came and told her the Holy Spirit would come upon her and she'd bear the, the Son of God. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph's going to try and do the, the right thing. And be, he's a just man, it says, so instead of doing a public, which could get her stoned, he, he's going to do it quietly to kind of save her life, essentially. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. It's a Christmas story. Christmas Day was the day that, that God implemented his plan of salvation. That plan that was always God's plan. God's plan from eternity past, before the creation of the world. This was God's plan, and he chose 2,022 years ago, approximately, they didn't do leap years for a while, but uh, about 2,022 years ago, God said, now's the time. This, this plan that had been prophesied for centuries and centuries beforehand, God said, now's the time. And he broke in, in this way, by an angel to a poor girl in, uh, in Nazareth. Why, why did Jesus come to save his people from their sins? My favorite Christmas verse is this one. This is from 1 Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, Jesus. Never head around that? Before God, the triune God, made the world. Jesus was known. This was the plan. That's why it's prophesied in the Old Testament. But he was made manifest. He was revealed in these last times. And remember, last times, as any, we talked about a couple weeks ago, from Jesus' ascension until he comes back again. We're living in the last times. He was made, he was revealed for our sake. Right? Because he came to save his people from their sins. This thing that was prophesied for, for many years, and that's what the next couple of verses are there, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Right? This prophet, he's, he's quoting, Matthew's quoting here from Isaiah. And one of the crazy things, it, it, the, the birth of Christ fulfilled over 350 Old Testament prophecies. Okay? A lot of the big ones that we think about at Christmas, um, Micah 5.2, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Uh, Daniel gets a vision that says specifically how many years until Jesus will be born and die. Right? And it fulfilled it to the year, to the month. Um, but this one, this I quote from Isaiah, is one of the most amazing ones for me. I love this. this is, if this doesn't just prove it by on, by, beyond all <laughs> reason of doubt. So the book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ. Okay, And it has some of those classic Christmas verses. This one, or the other one we say so often at Christmas, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9.6. And so those Christmas verses, you think of those, to remember they were written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ. And then he fulfilled them. I mean, no one else fulfilled that in history, right? We, no one else was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. So we know it's Jesus. Everybody agree? On the same thing? Okay. Here's the crazy thing with living when we are. This is awesome. In 1946, there was a shepherd herding some sheep near the, near the Dead Sea, and he fell into a cave. And in the cave was some jars. And he looks in these jars, and they had some really old scrolls in it. So he took and got them eventually. He hid them for a while, but he wanted to get some money for them. But anyways, he eventually made it to some, some historians and that. And these are books of Isaiah, books of the Bible. And so they went back, and archaeologists, if you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
that's what this was, okay. Yeah, Julia. And, uh, and yeah, and see, if you ever Dead Sea Scrolls, for the next 10 years, they excavated, they ended up finding like 11 caves, and with all these lots of books of the Bible and other extra Jewish literature, okay? But the amazing thing is, is that these were dated, they were put there by a group of, called the Essenes, and so they were between the Old and New Testament, there's 400 years, okay? It's when Alexander the Great came and stuff. So, so in that 400 years, that this group, basically, they were still, they still so long for the Messiah. So they said, we're going to separate ourselves from the Jews, and we're going to be this community, and we're going to adhere to God's law, like, perfectly. So they were super strict. And one of the things they did was they copied the law of God over and over because they wanted to preserve it. They were really strict on preserving God's law. And so they kept it in, and then they stored it in these jars and these caves to preserve God's word. And so this group lived between the Old and New Testament, Okay. So then it wasn't found until 1946. So here's the crazy thing. You could, after the service, head down to Pearson, get on a plane, fly to Israel, go to the Israel Museum, and with your own eyeballs, you could look at a piece of papyrus with this writing on it, this verse, okay? You could look with your eyes at a verse that was written before Jesus was born, before Jesus, we know it was written before Jesus was born. That's when that group was there. Before he was born, and when you look at it, if you could read Hebrew, with your own eyeballs, and it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amen? I want us to understand that this is real. So often we treat Christianity like it's, like it's a, it's a made-up thing, like it's some mystical, I don't know. We, this is real, real. A real guy. Jesus was born as a baby. We don't just sing it. We don't just, you know, it's not like, like it's real history we're celebrating. Amen? Amen. And why did he do that? Why did the Almighty God come down to be born as a baby? For he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. If that's real, and I don't know how you can say it isn't, <laughs> that's why he came, to save us. And so I want to take this morning, we're talking about love, we're looking into why did Jesus can't come, and, and the whole Bible speaks to it, the whole Bible points to it, that it's all about Jesus coming to save us. This morning, I wanted to look at just one verse because it's familiar. And I want us to see it anew. I want us to get it. I want us to really let this sink in. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Our reality starts with God. It starts with God. We... we, we Who's, who's God? Who's it talking about here? I mean, throughout the history of humanity, humanity has always believed in gods, goddesses, gods, right? Every civilization. I mean, our modern-day civilization, that at least in what's taught in schools and universities and stuff, that says they've just made science their god. They've tried to take science, which isn't a bad thing. I just call it the study of what God's made. That's what science is. Um, it's true. Um, science says that, by the way. Science themselves say it's the study of the natural, like the world, and we know God made the world. So, but they take science and they try and explain the very thing science says it can't explain. Science says matter cannot be created or destroyed, and then they try and use science to explain how matter was created from nothing. I mean, it makes no sense. But that's the problem. We've, they've replaced God with science because they don't want to believe in a God. Hmm? And so we start with a God, but there's a reason. When you think about it, if you ever heard the question, maybe criticism of Christianity, like, like, I'm not religious because, you know, there's so many religions out there, you know, and it's like a defense, like, as if that's evidence that none of them are true. And I go, no, no, doesn't that make sense? Like, if the reason that every civilization throughout history has always believed that there's something more, doesn't that point to the fact that there's something more, you know? And, and, and it's because God created us. We know there's a God. We know it. Even if you've bought all the stuff that lots of our schools teach and that, that there is no God, we know that there is if we just take a minute and think about it. 
You look around, you look at how incredible it is, everything God created. We know there's a God. God's put it in our hearts. And we're looking for him. And that's why every society has always had believed in some kind of God, even ours that denies the existence of God often. And you get to a funeral, and what do they say? Ah, oh, she's with the angels, or she's in a better place, or something. Complete atheists say the same thing. Why is that? Because they, they're looking for comfort. You'd think that would be offensive, wouldn't it? If you really believe that God was like the tooth fairy, you'd think that, but no, they take real comfort, real comfort in the fact there's got to be something more. When we get to our, most, our, our lowest moment, you know, our most real moment, we know. We know there's something more. A bishop of the early church named Augustine said, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. I always like that, right? It's true. The Bible says Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in our hearts. We know. And so this verse is talking about the God of the Bible. And God, the Bible, is the almighty creator of everything. Okay, so let's just talk about who God is. God is... He's a divine being, and he's, he's all everything. So we talk about, if you ever heard, all omniscient, that's all-knowing. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. He's all-knowing. He's, he, he knows, and he's eternal. He knows past, present, and future. He's outside of space and time, right? He created everything. That is the definition of God. He is divine. But the God of the Bible is three in one, Right? Three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that can be kind of hard to understand. And, but I want to try, we need to understand this. this is important for us as Christians. We need to be able to explain this when someone asks us this question. How does that make sense? Let's help us. God is, the, the, the Christians would say, here's the doctrinal way of saying it, one being eternally existing in three persons. Okay? And it sounds complicated, but we can grasp this. So, we are human beings. That's what we are, okay? So, we're all human beings. We're all the same in that sense. We are human beings. That's how God created us. That's what we are. God is a divine being, right? He is divine in everything. That's how he can be all-powerful and all-knowing and eternal, right? But then we are also, we also have our personhood, that's who we are. And so I'm Mike Stanley, and, and who we are is about how we relate. And so what makes my personhood unique is that I am the husband of Amanda. No one else can say that. I'm the father of Micah and Luke and Isaac. I'm the pastor of Huron Chapel. I'm a friend of Calvin. I'm a son of John and Barb. You know, I, that's my personhood. That's who I am right? It's how I relate. It's the who. And so if you think about it that way, that's kind of the way you can understand. God is one being, one eternal divine being. All the divine attributes apply to all three persons at all times in, in, in full amount. But how they relate, how you think of the persons, is how they relate to one another. The gods, or God the Son, Jesus, submits to the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the Son. Right? Does that help? And that's the God of the Bible. And it's important because what that means that no other religion can say is that God has perfect relationship within himself. That's why the Bible can say God is love. Not do, God doesn't just have love, isn't just loving, he is those things as well. But God is love because he has perfect love and relationship within himself. Okay? And that's a problem. If you, other religions, they get into... Why did, God have, why did religions of other gods have to even make something? I mean, they're not real, but that's, they get into those conundrums because, you know, can they love when they are ultimate? Anyways, they, they get into a conundrum. God, the God of the Bible has revealed to us the one true God that he is three in one, and he, so he can have perfect relationship within himself. And so he created the world out of the overflow of his love. That's why he created it. God so loved the world that he created. And so let's talk about that. God so loved that out of the overflow of his love, he created the world. Everything we see, 
right? Everything there is, even the things we don't understand or don't see yet, some star somewhere no one's ever discovered. He created it all, you know, instantly, all powerfully, because he can. <laughs> but the pinnacle of God's creation was mankind, was us. And he made us special. And the Bible says that God breathed life into you, breathed life. He gives us our life. And I want us to take a minute just to think about that, that life that God gave. Isn't it amazing that God gave us life? We get to experience life. I want you to think about that. I mean, that's, that's our reality that we're living in, is we're, we're day by day experiencing life. You get to experience relationships, and you get to experience joy and love and happiness. You get to experience the pleasures of life, all the senses that he gave us, music and beauty, every passion that you have, all of those things that, that energize you. God gave all that when he gave you life, right? What a privilege it is to, to, to have life. That's what God gave you. But more than that, and, and, and we spend that life, I mean, basically with that, that's our day every day, right? We get up and we just experience life through that. We experience relationship. We experience pleasures and hardships and everything else. That's, that is what it means to be human, right? And we search for, so what's the point of all that? What's the point of all this? Well, when God created us, he says he made us in his image, What's that mean? He made us in his image. It means we're the only thing that God created that can have relationship with him. We're the only thing that he created that we can have relationship with him. That's what made us different. No other created thing can have relationship with him. And that is what life's about. That is what brings value and meaning to life. And so you think about our society, our society that denies the existence of God, that tells us that we all just came about by chance and random atoms and stuff like that, and then we wonder why people are depressed and can't find value or meaning, and then we see society, you still see it though, because it's humans, we, we need to have value and meaning in life. And so, and so they look for it, and, and that's why there's so much... Our society is so passionate about some moral cause or some virtue they're trying to put forward or trying to be being part of something. I need to find value in my life. What's this about? Right? It's because God created us to have relationship with him. That's the purpose in life. That's the meaning. That's where we find value and meaning is in that purpose. Amen? And if we don't have that, until we find that, we're restless and we're searching for it in, in all different ways, trying to find it. For God so loved the world, the world that he created, that he gave his only son. That he gave his only son. The Bible says, greater... Love has no one than this, than somebody who lays down his life for his friends. So God created you for relationship, but there's a problem. See, relationships based on love, that's what we're talking about this morning. But in order to have love, love is a choice, right? You can't make someone love you, right? Love is a choice. And so when God gave us, when he created us in his image for relationship with him, he gave us the ability to choose because otherwise it wouldn't be a real relationship. But that means he gave us the ability to choose not to. And that's what sin is, folks. I've shared this before. Sin, the foundation of sin, is simply a heart that says, I want to do it my way. I'm my own God. I don't want to submit to your way of doing life. I want to be my own God. I want to live life my way. And it's a rejection of the very creator, the God who created you, made you, and made you so that you could have a relationship with him, and you're pushing that away. You're turning your back on that. That's what sin is. It's pushing the very creator and life giver away. And so it only makes sense that if you choose to push the giver of life away, you're choosing to push 
life away. And that's why it says the wages of sin is death. It's just the logical outcome of pushing the very person who gives life away. He wants to give you life. And because he made us in his image, he gave us a soul that's going to live on. That's why God gave his only son who not perish so we can have eternal life. Once again, that's, we know there's something after we die. It's built into us as humans. We know it's real. Every civilization ever has believed in some kind of afterlife. Right? And so, doesn't it make sense that if you choose for your whole life to push God away and to say, no, I want to do it my way, <laughs> and to push the giver of life away, that the result is an eternity away from God? Right? That's what hell is. All the metaphors and the pictures in the Bible, right, of what it is, the worst part is that it's an eternity away from God. But God gave his son. And sin, God gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so he sent his son, and Jesus was born as a baby, and he lived the perfect, sinless human life, that life that we can't live, right? And then he died, and the Bible says that his death on the cross paid for our sin. That's what it's talking about when it says God gave his only son, gave him to die. Why did Jesus have to die? You see, because God is love, he must be just. Love has to have justice. We know this. Think of somebody you love, and if there was some evil done to them, we know there has to be. You wouldn't just shrug your shoulders and go, yeah, it's fine. Right? No, justice is built in, and because God is right and pure and ultimate in love in every way, he is ultimately just in every way. Right? The very fact that God is loving demands that he must be just. You can't be loving without justice. And so these sins needed to be paid for. And that's the picture we get in the Old Testament. The picture in the Old Testament we have is all these laws, and they're trying to fulfill them over and over, and they keep failing, keep failing trying to live up to God's standard, right? God's perfect standard. And they keep failing. And so then God gives them this picture of, Sin, these failings, when you reject and you rebel against me, there's, there's a cost. They need to be paid for. There's a justice that needs to be made. And, and so they had to do sacrifices, and they'd go and they'd endlessly kill the grossness of the blood flowing down, animal after animal. And they turn around, and they think a bad thought on their way out. And they've got to turn around and go do it again. You know, this picture of hopelessness, why the Messiah, we need a Savior it's why the Jews realized we need a Savior, we need a Messiah. And Christmas morning was when God initiated that plan of salvation. And so Jesus lived that perfect sinless life that we couldn't live. Right? And then he died for payment. For our sin. And he could do that. See, it couldn't be just any old human. Because even if we could live perfectly, which we can't, because we then we'd only die for our own sin. Even if we could live perfectly, we could maybe give our life for one other person, pay for theirs or something maybe. Uh, not possible, but you know what I'm saying? It had to be someone who was overall creation. It had to be someone who was eternal that could pay for the sin of past, present, and future. Right? But then he had to be tempted in every way just like us, the Bible says. And so he came and he lived that perfect sinless life and he experienced the sin of this world. He experienced betrayal and he experienced hatred and he experienced lies and he experienced the murder, <laughs> right? He experienced everything and yet without sin so that he could take our sin on himself. And when he died on the cross, what we believe is that God's wrath was poured out on him. He took the wrath of God for the evil of sin 
And, and we sometimes struggle with that as humans. We look at, why does it need to be the wrath? <laughs> why does sin have to be like that? Because we're comparing ourselves. We look at each other, and we kind of, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, and maybe not quite there, and we compare sins that way. It's not that bad, you know, living in a sinful world. But when you compare it to an absolutely holy and perfect God, there can be, God is everything that is right and good and pure. You know, evil is just, evil is, is, the Bible gives the picture of darkness. Evil is just what happens when you take God out. When you push God away, evil happens. It's like darkness. You can't make darkness, you just remove the light. I mean, that's what evil is. It is just the absence of God as we push him away. And God in his absolute ultimate perfection, that's why there can be no sin. The only option is either to burn it all up everything he created to get rid of the evil, or something has to pay for it. Something perfect, something that is eternal, that can pay for that. And that's what Jesus did for us. And that's what that Christmas story is about, right? That, that salvation, salvation, Jesus came to save us. He came to save us from that sin. And so how, does, how do we get that salvation? Romans 10.9 Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or made right, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. They're saying the two things go together, okay? Don't try and separate them. The two things, the belief in the heart and the confess with your mouth go together. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We're asking the question, what does it mean to believe in him? Everyone, John three sixteen. everyone who believes in him will not perish eternally, but have eternal life. Okay? And this is what it means. This is how to be saved. This is what Jesus came for. This is the most important thing you can understand in this life. Remember that real life that we live every day? All the experiences, all trying to find value, meaning this is the most important thing you could understand in relation to this life we're going to live here. Because if you believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, the heart part is this, that we believe these things we've talked about this morning. Do you believe that there's a God who's in ultimate authority he created everything. He's the ultimate authority. He gets to do what he wants, whether you like it or not. And someday he'll judge. And we can like that or not, but that's, if it's true, it's true. And we believe that. And we believe that he wants relationship with you. Do you believe that? That he created you for relationship with him? Do you feel that? And then do you believe that he sent his son? And do you believe Jesus is the son of God? God the son. And that when he died on the cross, that he paid for your sin. Do you believe that? So what it means to believe is, believe, we say put our faith in Christ. What does that mean? Faith, trust is the idea. Well, if we believe that that almighty God is going to judge us someday, that the end of this life ends in standing before him, if that's what we believe, on that day, believing in Jesus is what you're going to be able to say on that day. That's what you truly believe. On that day when you stand before him, what are you going to say? Right? I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church all my life. I said a prayer one time. Hmm? What are you going to say on that day? That's a reality that's coming for everyone. It's just as real as the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. That's the reality. What are you going to say on that day? Yes.
Anything that is not of faith is sin. It boils it down, doesn't it? What we're going to say on that day, that's the reality that's coming. What are you going to say on that day when you stand before him? That is what you believe. And so we believe that in our heart. We believe not only that he died for our sin, but the great thing is that he rose again. And when he rose again in bodily form, it was to prove that he's giving us that eternal life. Right? He showed us again, Christianity is incredible because we have proof of eternal life. We have proof of it because Jesus did it. He's the first one. He's the example. He showed us that there will be life after death. He came alive again. And he said, and then he ascended to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand. And he offers that freely to every one of you, if you would believe. And so you believe those things to be true. But then you also confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That Lord means master. Lord means he's in charge, right? We talked about what sin is. Sin is doing things your way instead of God's way. The word repent means literally, the definition of that word is to turn. And so you're doing it my way. I'm living life the way I want to live it. I'm in charge of my life. I'm my own God. Don't tell me what to do. And you get to a point where you go, I can't save myself. I believe these things. I want relationship with God. And he says, well, you need to turn. You need to believe these things in your heart. But then you need to turn and you need to surrender your life to me. And I need to be Lord. I'm in charge. And we give up our life. And we make him Lord. Him master. And we confess that with our mouth. It's public. God, everybody should know that Jesus is my Lord. He's in charge. And so Christians, I want to... Does your life look like it? Is he your Lord? Hmm. What are you going to say on that day? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do these mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you know him? Is he your Lord? And as I was preparing for this, this is where my heart went out, that you may have sat in church for 50 years. You can do a lot of religious things, but does he know you? Have you made him your Lord? Have you surrendered your life? Is he in charge? That's what a Christian is. Even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They probably know it in much more real fashion than we do. The Bible says that. They certainly don't submit to him as Lord. And God wants to give you that, that the gift of God is eternal life, the gift of Christmas. Remember, this is out of God's love. Right? And so God wants to give you eternal life. And the best life, life and life to the full, life abundantly, as it says in John, right, is a life submitted to him and a life where he is Lord. The God, the creator, the one who created you for relationship with him, doesn't it make sense that the best life would be a life in relationship with him? If you're wanting to try that out this morning,
we're going to give a chance this morning just for you to commit to that. Whatever God's saying to your heart. And so Calvin's going to come. We're going to go through a, go through a hymn. And uh, an old hymn. And um, whatever God's saying to you this morning. Maybe as we've looked at that, you've take some time and just as, as we're singing or playing the music, ask yourself, do you really believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived. He died for your sin. That that, that death on the cross paid for your sin. Do you believe that? That he rose again and offers you eternal life. Do you believe that in your heart? And maybe that's the start. And if you want to come up and talk to somebody, pray with somebody, ask questions about that, bring somebody with you, grab the hand. If that's never really, you're not sure of that, of that belief and you've got questions, come up. We'll love to talk to you. We'd like to pray with you. And if you do believe that in your heart and you're looking to make him Lord, you want to commit your life to him is Lord for the rest of your life, then I ask that you confess it with your mouth. You know, this is a public thing. It can be something to look back on and remember that day I went forward. That was the moment when I gave my life in public for people to see I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, right? It's the power unto salvation. And so if that's you and you'd like to commit that, your life, anew to Jesus, to him as Lord. There will be people here that can pray with you, or you can bring someone with you, grab their hand, bring them up. Anybody else who has that relationship you know, they'd love to be with you in this too. And so as we're playing, you can, you can just come up. Um, or if, if uh, maybe you just need to recommit. Maybe this has been, as you've looked at, you've you made this commitment a long time ago, but you haven't been living like it. There isn't the evidence that he's your Lord. Then grab somebody. We'd love to pray with you too. We can grab hold of that eternal life. Here's the lyrics to this hymn. It's, it's basically John 3.16 in a hymn. <laughs> o Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Do you believe God created us? That he gave his one and only son. <laughs> and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my, gladly, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. So we're going to sing that together. Feel free to come forward as we sing. Bring someone with you if you'd like to. And uh, let's worship together. Let's do both first two verses, that Calvin. One and two. Yeah, first two verses, yeah. Oh, Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder Consider all the worlds thy hand hath made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art. How great Thou art! And when I think that God is done not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in.
that on the cross my burden gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art stay standing if there's anybody up here you know personally and you'd like to pray with them just come on up and pray with them it's not a pastor's job <laughs> you know um, we're going to sing the last verse here that talks about that eternal life when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home what joy shall fill my heart then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim my God how great thou art amen that's what we're looking for. That's the eternal life he promises. And so we're going to end the service like this. We're going to sing this last chorus. Come on up. Um, take, you can sit in the chair there and pray if you'd like. Um, take time. I don't know what God's saying to your heart. This is his deal, you know. And uh, feel free to, but if you're wanting to make that confession public, I encourage you to come on up. Bring someone with you. If there's someone up here you know dearly, come up and pray with them. And, uh, and when uh, time is quiet, you can, you can head downstairs for the cookies. We're going to conclude like this. So just, if you wouldn't mind just kind of being quiet, you can chat downstairs. Amen. Take as much time as you'd like.